Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and the OSs we're upgrading. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Oh, pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Living in a different world than I was uh, a month ago. <laughs> I, I, well, A, I think we all are. But, um... Uh, oh, yeah, that. I was just talking about Windows. <laughs> so, uh, how's your conversion to Windows going? Uh, we'll talk about that later. Let's talk about uh, FM comparison. Okay, let's start there. So, we did... I don't know what to call it, UI revisions or just kind of a revisiting of kind of the overall navigation and structure of the app. So we had a call a couple of weeks ago right after the show to go over some of that stuff. And I had a bunch of ideas to kind of throw out there. And we decided, you know, we kind of went through that list and decided which ones were worth prototyping and which ones weren't. And then I spent some time making those and wanted to talk over some of those. And some of them are... It sounds like we're going to do, and some of them are kind of on hold, and we're kind of up in the air with a question mark at this point. So I guess we'll start with one that's totally up in the air, which is app menus versus kind of a, a built-in menu system and toolbar. And if any listeners have feedback about this, we'd love to know. Um, the problem space is basically the you know the file edit view menus that you see at the top of an application those behave slightly differently on mac and windows and particularly with a lot of windows apps those are going away with a lot of modern app design on mac apps they're not going anywhere in fact i don't think you can do anything <laughs> to get rid of them like that menu bar is always there you cannot put stuff in it but you can't get rid of it you can run in full screen okay yeah that's more of a user choice though yes so there's a couple of things that the app does there's not a ton of menu options but there's enough that is worth considering um there's things like zooming in and out in terms of changing the you know the zoom setting for the screen there is some kind of non canonical navigation areas like things don't really fit in with the flow of the app like a licensing screen or an about page or you know app settings stuff like that and we're trying to figure out the best way to to either put those in menus or kind of fudge a menu system in the ui and one of the reasons i thought about maybe we could do some of it in the ui was simplifying the keyboard shortcut stuff that Dave talked about last episode of how we he basically has to send the shortcuts through the web app and then try to catch them and send them to the back end to perform actions. Mm-hmm. And uh, that sounded kind of crazy to me. <laughs> and we also had the that side effect of like the web viewer losing focus and no longer receiving keyboard shortcuts or keystrokes after you select a menu item. So we came up with a pretty okay toolbar using bootstrap view drop downs and there's some things i like about it and there's some things i like about the native menus and it's kind of a weird situation where like i think really the mac users get the final vote here <laughs> because it's more important there like either one of these designs would work 
without question on Windows. Like people wouldn't notice one way or the other. Right. But but on on Mac, you're either going to only have the menus, and that's where you'll tell users to go, or you're going to have the menu that we can't get rid of, and then the menu that we made in the UI. So it's kind of a weird problem. And uh, Dave told me to put it on the back burner while he explores some other ideas. But yeah. Yeah. Um, as a primarily Mac user, you know, I, I had to make a certain amount of peace with using a web-based interface and that mm-hmm. this is not going to 100% look and feel like a native Mac app. Mm-hmm. It will, it, it looks really good, but it does not look like, you know, NS table views and things yeah. like that, like FM Perception was. FM Perception used very, very native GUI elements so that everything would look right on their particular platforms. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm now comfortable with moving to the web-based interface. I have not yet gotten comfortable with the idea of moving to web-based menus. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't 100% know if that's going to change. But I've got some other stuff to talk about later in the show that'll shed some more light on that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things we thought about when prototyping that was like making more like replacing the functionality of the menus rather than reproducing them. So rather than make our own file and edit and view menus, just get rid of those and make our own UI elements that could still use drop downs when needed, but get rid of those concepts that are that make people think, oh, this belongs in the menu and just replace them with the, you know, the minimal amount of controls. So we're kind of up in the air about what to do there. Um, I've got it added into the version that's there now, but that's mostly there so that I can navigate the app without having to have Dave do all the stuff for the menus until we decide what to do. So yeah, there's some other stuff that would be affected by this design wise of like, if we don't put the menu type content there, do we still have a toolbar? What lives in the toolbar? If we don't have a toolbar, then where do the handful of things that are there now go? And the rest <laughs> of the app structure, Seth. Yeah, I've gone in circles with this for the last couple of weeks mentally. <laughs> and I was telling Dave, like the prototype that I made, I sat there for an hour and just looked at it, like toggled on and toggled off. Like, I honestly can't tell you which one I like better. Like, I just don't know. I There are... A number of reasons to like and hate both of these options. Yeah. So I'm just love to hear what other people have to think have to say about it. I mean the the really nice part of moving with the web based menus is basically the entire UI is the same between mm-hmm. Mac and Windows. Yeah. I mean just once we've got the menus in there, that was really the big outstanding thing that was going to look and feel slightly differently on Mac versus Windows. Mm-hmm. And if we move them into the web view, there's basically no visual difference. Yeah. You could really just make all of your screenshots and documentation based on just the content of the web view. And just cut out the window Chrome entirely. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure if that's like just because it's awesome for developers isn't necessarily a good reason to do it. <laughs> In terms yes. of making the best experience for the users. So yes. There's that. Total agreement. 
So another thing that we worked on is kind of a, a round of changes to the sidebar. Um, our sidebar was, I wouldn't say busy, but it had a lot going on. It had a lot of data packed into a small row. And essentially we've got, this is like our sidebar of categories that you select. So like tables or fields or layouts or scripts. We had an icon for each one, a name that would is going to have to be localized at some point. And then three counts, which we were calling the traffic lights. So uh, creations, deletions, and modifications, the three types of changes that can happen in these diffs. And trying to make that responsive, particularly on in like great big zoom levels when you're zoomed way in, or when you are moving the sidebar around, you know, because it's kind of a user resizable object if you make this the sidebar really small trying to make that responsive in a way that all five of those elements behave in a way that makes sense to people was proving tricky so we came up with some alternate alternate designs and in the course like i, I think i listed like five options mm -hmm. to talk to you about and we didn't even approach any of them because in the course of talking about those we decided hey why don't we just put the the counts the traffic light things on a second row underneath there, underneath the category name. And that ended up looking pretty darn good. Um, mm -hmm. We did a version with the badges or kind of pill-shaped uh, objects with the traffic light colors with white text. And then I also did a version that swapped out the badges and just did... Uh, colored font or colored text right below there. And I think that looked pretty good too. And then we had to kind of play with our colors because the yellow didn't really work well in light mode and the other colors didn't work particularly well in dark mode. So I had to find like darker, kind of more dynamic shades of green and red. And then we decided to change the modification color from yellow to blue, which broke the traffic light metaphor. But I think in a good way like it no longer those colors no longer have the same meaning now that the colors are related more to the data that they represent rather than some kind of preconception of this is good this is stop this is warning now it's more like mm -hmm. you know green just means created and red means deleted and blue means modified modified so yeah it was a it was a weird change and it took me a minute to wrap my head around it mm-hmm um, but I think it's a positive one and it looks really sharp. Yeah. So in the, in the course of re of doing all of that work and the work in the previous two weeks, when we were talking about kind of mapping all the category data, one of the things I had to do when I was getting that category data displaying in this table is I, I converted from using the bootstrap view B table to the B table simple which is basically a version of tables where you're no longer relying on any of the dynamic loading features to, you know, you don't just point it at an array and say, you know, here, here are the field definitions display this with B table simple. You use regular VF statements and V4 loops to loop over the content and kind of echo stuff out yourself. Um, yeah, some somewhat ironically, B table simple is in some ways more complicated 
and gives you more flexibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's way more, it, it's much more like you would normally make a table. Like the B table is a really awesome element, but th- this is the only time I've ever seen something like that. I'm used to what they tag as the simple version. But I ran into some limitations with it. I noticed at one point that keyboard navigation was no longer working. And I thought that had something to do with the work that Dave was doing on keyboard shortcuts. And I don't think it is. I think it. I was playing with it on Friday. Was it Friday? Wednesday? I don't remember. I was playing with it at some point and realized that even the arrow keys stopped working and the row selection wasn't working the way that I wanted. So I started looking into the documentation. Btable and Btable has all of the crazy features that we're used to in Bootstrap View. Btable Simple has almost none of them. So it doesn't support keyboard navigation at all. So the mm. keyboard just passing over that and going to scrolling the window or the content region instead. So I need to figure out how to how to fix this. I need to either put it back the way it was, which isn't going to work with the data that's structured there now, or figure out how to restructure the data in such a way that it makes sense, or kind of redesign the entire thing, or find a different approach to the sidebar entirely. So the monkey wrench in this is we've got these grouping rows. So our regular row is an icon, a name, and three counts. And we split that up onto two rows. We've got some responsiveness that will, you know, break them onto multiple rows if they're zoomed in really far. And all that's possible. The the monkey wrench is the grouping rows. So Dave wanted to be able to kind of, in FileMaker terms, sub-summarize this list into visual groups. So we can say tables and fields belong together. So they kind of make them look like they belong together and, and slightly apart from the rest of the stuff. And that's proving to be really difficult with Btable. And I did a version this morning that is, it technically works. I haven't fixed all the formatting issues yet, but with Btable, with selectable, there's no way for me to say this row is selectable and this one's not. They're all selectable. And that means when you go to one of our rows with that is just a grouping row, it doesn't have any content, but you can still tap on it. And that's kind of annoying. Like you shouldn't be able to, to click on that or select it with the keyboard. You should just skip that. Um, so I, I made kind of a bad version of this this morning that <laughs> using uh, view slots on a cell on a cell that we essentially have a table of a single a single cell table and then all of the content inside there is just using regular bootstrap rows and columns with you know objects inside that and that works i'd have a lot of work to do on the formatting to get it to look as good as the simple table version but the way it is now i'm not happy with but I don't really know what else to do with that option. So I don't know. I I wrote four options for this. I wanted to talk to Dave on the show and get some mm-hmm. feedback. Option one is sorry, you can't use keyboard navigation on the sidebar, which is not a very nice option. No. Uh, particularly for people like me. 
Um, option two is continue the work that I started this morning on the Btable version to see if I can figure out a way to maybe intercept the selection on the grouping rows. And like, if you select a grouping row, can I just immediately go to the next or previous row, depending on where you're on the list? Um, something like that. Mm -hmm. Like select a row, like deselect yourself, kind of like that uh, that useless box that you flip a switch and a little hand comes out of the box and flips the switch off again. <laughs> like, like, can I make the table row version of that? <laughs> and then uh, I was also looking around at, you know, just doing a, a Google search for view sidebar menus and found a couple of relatively interesting looking approaches. Um, need to spend some more time looking at those to see if they're really viable None of them had the level of detail that we have, but they, mm -hmm. I did find several that had, you know, a nice grouping element and then a prominent menu element, which is kind of what we need. I don't know. What do you think so far? Um, I'm not in particular committed to using Bootstrap for something that it's not working well for. Mm -hmm. So moving to something else isn't a problem for me, particularly if it looks sharp. Um... I definitely don't like that first option. Yeah. The second option feels a little hacky. Mm -hmm. And I know from having done things like that previously and other things that it's always a pain tracking kind of what direction you came from. So that if you're going down the list, you skip over it and it goes to the next one. But if you're going up the list, it skips over it and goes up. Yeah. That ends up always being a pain in the butt. Yeah. Um, so uh, I I think you didn't list a fourth option, but I think the fourth option is probably figure out how to do keyboard shortcuts on the B table symbol. Mm -hmm. um, which in some ways sounds like a pain in the butt, aside from the fact that we're going to have a keyboard manager in there somewhere anyway. So well, it's not entirely that. It's not just the keyboard shortcuts. The B table simple ones aren't selectable in the same way. Okay. So the, the table rows don't have any of the selection states that the regular table does. Okay. Um, something else that occurred to me, getting rid of all of our grouping rows, because right now in the data, Dave made a little FileMaker file that generates a blob of JSON, and we have rows in that JSON for the grouping elements. It occurred to me we could just get rid of all of those rows entirely, and on the first or last row of each section, have a Boolean indicator that says this row has one. This row is a you know a starting row for a section, and mm -hmm. then provide a little bit of extra formatting there. That would be, I don't know, if we just threw a horizontal line in there, that may mm -hmm. not be enough to break up the sections. But if we added some padding around it or a different color line, something like that, mm -hmm. different thickness. Um, the, the weird part about that is that whatever that extra element would be, it would be selectable as part of that row, which I don't know. That would look a little inconsistent when you're scrolling down the list. Maybe conceptually, it sounds like a reasonable approach. Um, you know, the 
first item in a list or the last item, first item in a section or the last item in a section has a line in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I almost think like if you look at some iOS tables, they have several different grouping styles and one of them has, it's a pretty subtle, but the default line that breaks up rows in a table on iOS doesn't go all the way to the left. It starts like 20 pixels or 16 pixels in from the left. It's slightly indented, but section lines go all the way to the left. So I wonder if we could do something like that where the section line is maybe twice the, the thickness of the row line and the row lines have a little bit of indenting with them. wonder if that would be enough to kind of visually break up these sections. The good news about that answer is that it shouldn't be all that hard to try out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically just remove all the section rows, throw a boolean in the data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's figure outable. And then that could kind of keep us on the B table element, which is kind of the most dynamic thing. So all of our rows would be the same. We wouldn't have to try to be figuring out what type of row we are. We could go back to using the regular field mapping stuff with that and then just do a slot for that last property to say, is this a starting row? Um, add a line in that slot. Yeah. I think I'll start with that. Okay. Kind of a live brainstorming, figuring out what Joe's (laughs) going to do tomorrow. So yeah, I will come up with something for that tomorrow on a, on a secondary branch and let you know what I come up with. If not, we'll look into more options. Something else that I wanted to talk to Dave about was kind of the, uh, we were kind of playing with navigation of the app and we've got this configuration screen and there's, you know, you pick a DDR for the original, you pick a DDR for the modified. There's all this logging that's going on, there's progress bars. Then you get to push a button to start the comparison. Do we navigate now? Do we wait? All of this stuff kind of occurred to me like, we need to figure out what state this application is in at any given time. And this mm-hmm. is one area where I can drive myself crazy. And Dave has a much better mind for this type of stuff. So we talked through everything that I could think of, and then he turned that into a state diagram or several state diagrams. So Dave, why don't you tell us about state diagrams? Yeah. um, I had started kind of messing with this, but not in any formulaic sort of way. When I started with the fact that you can pick two chunks of XML and then start them loading. And then while they're loading, say, start the comparison. And when you say start the comparison, it just kind of sits there in a waiting mode, waiting for the two XML loads to finish. And then it starts doing the comparison automatically. Or you could wait for the two XML loads to finish and then click the start comparison button. But I didn't want you to, you know, queue up two large XML loads and then have to wait for those to finish before you can press a button that you then have to wait another 60 seconds. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had, I had been playing with this same problem, but never really sitting down and going, okay, how are we going to manage this? Um, and as we started talking about this, I went, I know exactly what we need to do. We need a finite state diagram. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of, I don't know if the term's classic, but it's a, a, you don't see it a lot in FileMaker, but you see it a lot in other environments. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Unity uses finite state diagrams in its animation engine mm-hmm. for controlling what kind of animation is running for a particular thing at a moment and under what conditions that thing changes how it animates. And so I was like, perfect, finite state diagram. This will let me map it all out and it'll be simple. And then I started trying to draw this thing that kind of has like three different branches to it. And it was a monstrosity that was horrifying. (laughs) Um, And shortly after that, I just kind of stopped and went, I just need to let this percolate for a little while. Mm -hmm. And about 72 hours later, my brain just suddenly, and it was literally like two o'clock in the morning. My brain just goes, I've got it. It's not one finite state diagram. It's three. Basically, there's that they talk to each other, but there are three independent sets of state for this. There's one for loading the original XML. There's one for loading the modified XML. And then there's one for doing the comparison. And depending upon where you are in each of those states controls which buttons are live which buttons are shown, hidden, showing indeterminate progress indicators, cancelable, because rather than having this really complex mishmash of possible situations that we're in and the way they interact, the entire loading process has like eight or ten possible states. And I'm now defined those. These are... These are the only 10 states the app can exist in. And because of the way they are independent, it's actually three different states simultaneously. That sounds more complicated than it actually ends up being. It ends up being much simpler that way. Because I can say the original load process can be in one of these five states. And that's it. Done. The modified load process has basically the same five states. And then the comparison process has like six. Mm. And I just ended up at 15. My numbers are off. But the point is, um, actually, I think if I do that math properly, that's 16. Anyway, um, it actually still ends up only being about 12. But this then allows us to say for each of these states what's possible for the user to do and what do we need to be showing to the user. And also for each of those states, what states is it possible to get to? It's not that, you know, you can jump from any of these states to any of these other states. You can't cancel a process you haven't started. Yeah. So just mapping where all of these go, it's a bunch of little lines and little, little box for each state. And little arrowed lines, almost like an entity relationship diagram Mm -hmm. that just says, we're in this state. There's only one place this state can transition to. Once you've finished a load, 
there is no way to go back to the I do not have XML loaded state. The most you can do is say, I would like to load different XML. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so once you, in the same way that mapping out an entity relationship diagram clarifies all sorts of questions about um, how all the pieces of the data fit together, the finite state diagram says, what can the user do at any one moment and how do they get from point to point? Ignoring UI, I mean, we could make any number of buttons or, or arrangements of elements on screen to cover these things. But any way you slice it, any UI that I make has to cover these possible states. Um, and so we've been mapping that out. I've just this morning sent Joe an updated finite state diagram and we'll hash that through and see if he likes the new modifications because I took the liberty of naming the states and he may not like those names. <laughs> yeah, they need to be named after me. <laughs> well, that's what the JS prefix means. It's not JavaScript. It's Joe Simpson. Oh, nice. <laughs> Wait, I can get a lot of t-shirts. <laughs> from the javascript community <laughs> it's view.joe simpson yeah sure is um, and if i play with this a little bit more i think this might actually make for a good like dev con session or user group topic because i don't think it's anything that i've seen anybody talk about mm -hmm. in the filemaker community but i think it's another useful tool that just hasn't shown up yet so. yeah yes yeah, one of the state in one in general is one of those programming concepts that when i first started poking my head outside of filemaker i would hear on podcasts somebody talking about you know state one of the most difficult things to do in an app i'm like what are you talking about like I don't even know. I, I don't even understand the concept. And <laughs> it was really with uh, working with Unity and kind of state management for a, a, any given scene or level that it really started to make sense to me of like how you objects. It, it made much more sense when you were talking about how objects align inside this virtual world. Like, yeah. you know, these game objects are responsible for their own behavior. And then there's this larger say object pooling object that is responsible for creating and managing and deallocating these types of objects and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it, it just made a lot more sense in that context. And then I was yeah. kind of able to apply that concept to other stuff. And yeah. like in retrospective timelines, state is kind of all figured out. It took me a while to get there, but you know, it's, there's a very limited number of states that app can ever be in and I've kind of walled off everything else. So you just can't get to where you're not supposed mm -hmm. to be. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with this is like, how do we get FM comparison into a state where nobody can walk off the path and get stuck somewhere, get the app hung in, in some, some format that it can't recover from. So, Yeah. The, the cool part about this is instead of trying to say, okay, this button, this button knows the rules under which this button lights up. And the button right next to it has a different set of rules under what under which it lights up. 
and trying to teach each of those buttons the rules ends up producing duplicated code. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, really hard to maintain code. But if we reduce these to states, there's just a, a value sitting behind this thing that goes, here is the current state of the application. And every button knows whether it is on or off for each of those states. That's all it has to worry about. In these states I am on, in these states I am off. It doesn't have to worry about how it got there or anything else. It's just pretty simple at that point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, did you ever get Electron working? <laughs> kind of, sort of? Yeah. Is that a, okay. is that a sore Ish. topic? <laughs> it really is. Mm-hmm. Um. So, did we actually talk about this last week? You mentioned that you were going to take a look at... Gotcha. Okay. Well, I took a look at it. (laughs) Um, And there's some elements of it that work really nicely. And some elements that really don't. Um, Vue has a nice plug-in system for adding in uh, certain common JavaScript modules that you might need. And one of them is Electron Builder. Hmm. And so I could integrate Electron Builder with basically one line of code. Hmm. Just tell the view CLI to add this thing and it adds it and sets up the preferences and everything and it's done. And it works. You can you can build this as an Electron app. It doesn't really do much at that stage. But it's technically an Electron app. And then there's this... Uh, JavaScript module and matching.net library called Electron CGI that has a really nice, pretty clean way of passing data back and forth between a JavaScript front end and a.net back end. And that was easy to slot in. And there's some cool stuff there. Like one of the things that you can do is you can say, This is the folder where my .NET code is, the raw code. Mm -hmm. And when I run the Electron app, or even just run it in a browser, if that code hasn't been built, that code, the, the module in the library, will actually send the command line code to build that on the fly. Oh, nice. Which basically means that you get close to that live server kind of interaction where I can make a change to the .NET backend and then hit save, go to the front end and just hit refresh and it will rebuild the backend for me. Really slick. Mm-hmm. Where everything falls apart is when you're actually trying to build it into an Electron app. Oh, okay. Like an actual double clickable Electron app. And... That breaks because there's there's kind of two pieces that has to happen. One, it can't go out to this folder anymore, just full of raw code. I have to be able to hand it a, a compiled application to run as the helper. And I can build that application, but I can't get Electron to talk to it anymore. It talks hmm. really happily to the raw code. It does not talk happily to the built code. It sounds like architecturally, these are two different approaches. So like 
if I understand the way that your current version is working, you're providing a C-sharp app a binary that has a folder of web code in it that that app is then referencing with a web viewer. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like Electron is the opposite. It's providing its own Chrome and it's telling the website how to talk to a little embedded application. Um, yeah. I usually think of the current one as actually having almost three layers. There's a native layer that loads the JavaScript from a folder and then that JavaScript then asks questions of a C-sharp layer. Okay. Now that .NET layer is actually in the outer Chrome, but it still really functions as three layers. Mm -hmm. And so Electron kind of compresses two of those layers yeah. and just says, I mean, technically there's native Chrome there, but it really is just, there's a JavaScript layer and then behind that is a C-sharp layer. So yeah, so at least part of it seems to be a problem with something that Electron does, which is it takes, you know, when I'm building this JavaScript for including in the current version of FM comparison, it makes a minified, very tight folder of HTML, JavaScript, and images. Hmm. And there's five or six files in that folder most of the time. For Electron, they actually jam all of that into one file. <laughs> And it's this asar.app, A-S-A-R.app file that has all the HTML, JavaScript, and images jammed into it. And that's cool. And conceptually, I like that. But talking out of that is problem number one. Because basically all of your internal hyperlinks, not hyperlinks, but references, you know, file paths, get rewritten to actually reference pieces of the contents of that app or a sar.app file. Mm. So they go from being external file references to internal like chunk references. So that's cool. The problem is that I have a link that I need that actually still needs to go outside because the compiled C sharp doesn't go into the app, the SR file. Yeah. And so figuring out how to make that reference work is proving to be slightly complicated. And unfortunately, the samples from the guy who wrote the Electron CGI element, he doesn't use the asar.app thing. So he's just throwing it in the folder with the rest of his JavaScript. I'm like, okay, I can do that too. Let me dig in there and figure out uh, how to tell it not to make the asar.app. That's supposed to be optional. Mm -hmm. And so far, nothing I have done has been able to turn that off. <laughs> um, and this is a part where it actually, the nice integration of view hurts us. Yeah. It hurts me. And this is because in the process of making all this stuff simplified, they like condensed a lot of the options into like one big configuration file. And even though it uses the same properties, they aren't structured exactly the same. And so looking at, they just say like, oh yeah, go look at the documentation for Electron Builder. But the documentation of Electron Builder has a sample JSON file for how it's supposed to be set up. And that looks nothing like the one for Vue. 
And so trying to figure out exactly where this goes and, and whatever. So I've effectively got like three different um, uh, Stack Overflow questions that I have to send out to the community to be like, okay, step one, how do I turn off the app build? By the time I'm done with all three questions, I may not need to turn it off. But how do I turn this off using this particular construct? Just telling me here's the property name doesn't cut it. Um, second, how do I link outside of the asar.app if I need to? What does that structure look like so that that reference doesn't end up getting munged by the process of making the asar file? And then the third piece is um, as part of the electron builder process, it gathers up all the files that you need and shoves them into the application bundle. Well, I needed to also go grab this compile.net application and stick it in a particular location in the application bundle. And the documentation on how to do that is also pretty poor. Um, all of this is, is exacerbated by the fact that the guy who wrote this thing, A, doesn't use the asar.app setup, and B really only wrote this so that it would work for Linux. It actually works cross-platform, but he doesn't write Mac applications. So, and he doesn't really care about Mac applications. So none of his documentation addresses anything on the Mac side. And he has no real interest in supporting that. Mm -hmm. This is one of those fun open source things where he made what he made. And you can use it or not. Mm -hmm. This is yeah. the closest I've gotten to actually getting this process to work in Electron. And it's so close. I really want to be able to use it. It may also simplify some of our uh, command key equivalent stuff and keyboard shortcuts because Electron already has its own system for kind of handling that. So I'd still really like to do this, but I have not gotten the answer yet. I also hate asking stack overflow questions because I really don't want to sound like I have no idea what's going on, even though I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it, it's kind of like a filing a good bug report. It's like, you want it to be detailed. You want it to nail all these things down. And I'm going to have to explain why I'm using this particular configuration so that I don't get a bunch of answers going, why are you doing that? Mm -hmm. Just do this other simple thing. Well, the other simple thing does me no good. <clears throat> so, yeah. 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 A little word of advice for anybody posting an answer to a Stack Overflow question. If, you're, if the content of what you're posting contains the word just, then delete it and go away. Just, I don't want to hear it. Don't ever say, why don't you just... I don't want to hear it. <laughs> if I'm posting this question, I have already thought about it more deeply than that why don't you just response deserves. <laughs> so, yeah, I, Electron is, if I can ever get this stupid bloody thing to fully work, it'll make a lot of my life simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, honestly, we've still got multiple projects 
going on and multiple repos i can actually condense all of this stuff down so that it's all basically in one gigantic and relatively complicated project this will also make it really easy for me to hand the whole thing to joe and say joe when you are done you can make your own builds Mm -hmm. whereas right now the build process is rather complicated making these multiple projects talk to each other yeah there's relative pathing issues and things like that and it's all set up to work on my desktop and my laptop but making joe's windows machine do that would not work well (laughs) um i'm sorry my desktop my laptop and my uh windows environment yeah it'd probably be quicker for me to rdp into one of your computers (laughs) (laughs) Uh, at this point yes absolutely but if I can make this work, it'll just be a separate little, you know, it'll be um, uh, NPM run electron colon build. Hmm. Dink! And it would just build it for whatever platform you're currently on. Like, just done. Nice. That, I so want that. I want that for both of us, Joe. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, that's been my fun. Uh, what else you've been working on? So continuing to play around with WebVR and WebVR and View, and I made some progress. Um, I talked last episode about how I was getting all of these view warnings in the console of like using A-frame objects like A-box and A-sky and stuff like that, getting all of these warnings saying, unregistered components, make sure to register component, blah, blah, blah. And I was getting, you know, thousands of these in the live preview version of it. But when I built and compiled the app and uploaded it to the website, there were no errors at all. So it was definitely a view thing happening. And I found a little GitHub repo where somebody had put together an example of working with view and A-frame. And one of the things they had in their sample code is view.config.ignoredElements, which basically just tells you <laughs> you're not responsible for any of these. Just ignore these. So I just passed that a comma-separated list of all the A-frame elements that I'm using, and voila, the warnings go away. Nice. Yeah, makes me happy. Not everything is perfect with view and A-frame yet. I still need to spend some time getting things working, like following the documentation for A-Frame to load a 3D model. If I do that in a regular HTML file and write all of that without outside of a view environment, it all works. If I do the same thing in the view environment, my assets never load. And I'm not sure what's happening there, but I never end up with you know, the model showing up and not sure what it sounds kind of like something you described with the links getting broken. So I wonder if something like that is happening. If I need to tell View to load assets from this folder when it's doing the build. So there are things like that. I also couldn't get, I mean, I could get sound working, but not well. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure if that has something to do with A-Frame or WebVR or the Oculus browser or just my sound file. But uh, I don't know, I still have a lot of work to do to try to get something useful out of this. But some of the stuff that I was doing when I was playing with this was 
Uh, A-frame has atmospheric fog, which is one of my favorite visual elements in, particularly in <laughs> VR. Um, one of the games that I used it really successfully is called Virtual Virtual Reality, which is this kind of just almost insane experience where you you play as one of the only humans left in this world run by machines and you're basically, you know, humans are really only good at menial labor for the AIs. So we're just showing up to to do housework and stuff and uh, <laughs> in this virtual environment. And uh, so you, you basically get assigned jobs. You get a boss named Chaz, who's exactly like what you would imagine a guy named Chaz being. He's just this really weird robot. And uh, any all listeners of, named Chaz should contact Joe directly. Yeah, yeah. My uh, my website is fmperception.com. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> That's Todd's website. Don't even bring him into this. <laughs> nice. But uh, you basically, you go around um, in this virtual world, you navigate by putting on more and more VR headsets. And each one of these worlds is basically a very limited environment and they make really good use of atmospheric fog to kind of just get rid of the horizon so the further away things are i don't know it's hard to describe unless people are used to playing video games but uh atmospheric fog can be a really nice visual element uh firewatch makes really good use of it in their design and how they change the color of the horizon without actually changing the color of the assets on the horizon some pretty mm. cool stuff there. Um, so yeah, I, I'm going to thoroughly abuse atmospheric fog. It's one of those <laughs> things that Unity has, but Unity has a bad implementation. And if you want a good implementation, you've got to code your own or get a third-party asset. And the version in A-Frame is actually really good and very simple to use. And uh, I'm using it. I made a little, I don't know what to call it. It's just a place that I can go. It's a little VR room. It's kind of my own sensory deprivation tank where I can just kind of go away and get away from stimulus for a while. And it's just this gray environment with some fog and a couple inverted isospheres that are wireframed. And the isospheres, there's, there's two of them, one inside of the other, and they're rotating on different axes at slightly different directions at slightly different speeds. So it's like there's basically no input except for these two slightly rotating objects around me and I can just sit there and think and not have to, you know, be kind of overwhelmed by my environment, which is kind of awesome. So I've been spending a lot of time in there just thinking through stuff. You know, if I've got a tricky design problem or, you know, what am I going to work on next type of thing, just spend five minutes in there doing that. The first time I got it all up and running, I spent like an hour laying on the floor just like, having no experience which was kind of awesome <laughs> <laughs> it's like the most immersive lack of experience i've ever had <laughs> completely immersed in almost nothing yeah yeah i don't know why i crave that type of atmosphere but i do <laughs> so something else that i did now that i'm you know working on this windows machine i was doing you know, kind of iterative development where I'd be working on the the live preview of Vue and testing in the browser. 
testing in the headset with a live preview proved to be pretty buggy. Like, the for some reason, the headset couldn't always see the site on the local network. And if it did, it wasn't loading it over HTTPS. So a bunch of stuff just wasn't working in A-Frame unless it's loaded securely. So, you know, I got a, I tried two separate approaches to this. One was just coming up with a build and FTP process to put a copy of the site on a subdomain on my web server. And that's kind of like currently what I'm relying on. So I'll work in the browser on the desktop for a while, you know, just check the changes as I make them. And then when I'm ready to do a play test, I'll just build and FTP the entire site up and then go put the headset on and try that. But I don't want to always do that. I'd like to be able to do more of the live preview stuff in more iterative and faster fashion. So I decided I will tether the headset to the PC and couldn't really get a good consistent experience with that with the Oculus Quest. You can tether the Quest to a PC and use it with the Oculus software, but it was just kind of like constantly falling asleep and like there was no quick, let me just put the headset on and test something and take it off. Like the, mm. that quick process just didn't exist. So I did what I always do when I have something that I can't do in VR. I bought another VR headset. Oh, <laughs> so, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the Samsung Odyssey Plus, which is the successor to the Samsung Odyssey that I had a couple years ago. And it's essentially the same headset, only slightly higher resolution, better lenses, the microphone is better, and it's much more comfortable than the previous version. Um, but it's a Windows Mixed Reality headset that, you know, it's got its own pros and cons with it. Um, it's not really a gaming headset. You can play games on it, but I wouldn't want to play Beat Saber in this headset. Mm-hmm. Like it uses inside-out tracking and the inside-out tracking is nowhere near as good as what's on the Oculus Quest. Um, so it's not really good for those types of like really immersive embodied experiences, but it is really good at productivity type things. So the Windows Mixed Reality environment is basically this kind of like stepping inside your PC and using your apps in this virtual environment. You can have virtual desktops and floating app windows all around you and kind of configure this in, this home environment however you want. And I got the headset and I was playing around with it. I was So I was wearing the headset. I was in VR. I was using the desktop, which is just a window onto your regular Windows desktop. And I'm using VS Code to build and, or to you know NPM serve the app. And then I go over to the browser and enter VR to test the scene, just you know, kind of poke my head and see if everything looks right. So while I'm in that scene in web VR, I'm basically, for lack of a better term, I'm inside the browser at this point. I hit the little Windows button on the controller thinking that's gonna send me back to where I came from, but it doesn't. It brings up a menu that shows me the same menu that I see in my home of like, here are all the apps you can add to your space. So I started dragging apps out into my scene. So now I'm on my kind of road to nowhere scene <laughs> on a you know a live preview site running on the machine. 
and I'm pulling out virtual desktops and virtual windows from other apps. And then I'm, I'm standing in there, I'm using the virtual desktop to access VS Code, and I'm making changes to the scene that I'm standing in, and they're <laughs> happening in real time. <laughs> okay, okay. So maybe the, the Samsung Odyssey was a reasonable purchase. But... Yeah, yeah. Essentially, I now am the master of my own world. <laughs> Pardon me. Let me edit reality for a moment. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty awesome. And then I broke it. Okay. Yeah. So I all that was working with whatever version of Windows came on this this uh, PC, and I updated that. And part of updating that installed the new Chromium version of Edge, which is a far superior browser to the legacy version of Edge, but it's not really working with WebVR stuff yet. So I submitted some bugs to Microsoft. There's some known issues about it. And there's there's also some known issues with mixed reality and the update that it went to. There should be a patch coming out soon. So all of what I said will be possible in about three to four weeks. But right now, it's not really working right now. So I'm kind of back to the FTP option for now. But uh, I, I even briefly explored, um, there is a way since I have Windows Pro, there is a way to install a group policy that will tell Windows to keep both versions of Edge on the machine inaccessible. And I did that, but that just totally broke the browser in the Windows Mixed Reality environment. So I had to get rid of that. Yeah. So yeah. Nothing worked right now. The only thing I haven't tried is a VR-specific browser. Um, there's one called Super Medium, which this would be possible. It's a Steam VR app and there's a, there's an Oculus app, so I'd have to get my Windows Mixed Reality headset working with one of those. I don't think it works very well with Oculus, but it does have a way to work with Steam VR apps. So I may be able to just get a permanent browser session, like a standalone browser app running and kind of play test that way, or just build my own. There's a there's basically the web VR version of Electron out there. I may be able to build my own app that can work for this type of development. But anyway, it's probably not worth spending much time on. But it was just an interesting couple of weeks trying out different stuff with this thing. Mm -hmm.